0: You're listening to the Oil and Gas This Week podcast
1: with Mark LaCour and Jake Corley. This is the show for busy oil pros who quickly want to keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas This Week podcast. You're listening to episode 194. What's up, Mark? It's Super Bowl Sunday.
0: It's Super Bowl Sunday, and Jake, I had to do something that broke my heart. What's that? I had to get rid of my G37. Really? What yeah, happened? I lost a transmission. It was about five grand to repair it. Had one hundred fifty thousand miles on it, and it just didn't make fiscal sense. So I didn't go buy a new car. I bought two new cars. <laughs> <laughs> I really did. So I bought an Infiniti QX50, which is their small SUV, because we needed one for work. And then I bought an Infiniti Q60 Red Sport, which is the newer version of my old car. And then Jake, I don't have the car yet. So in my garage right now, because I ordered it as soon as I bought the car, I have new downpipes, a bigger intercooler, new air intakes, performance flash, new exhaust. So I'm going to go from 400 horses to 500 horses. As soon as I bolt all that stuff on. <laughs> so I'm
1: excited. It sounds like it's not a bad deal for you then.
0: Well, I, I was going to buy new cars anyway. I just, Jake and the audience, if you don't know this, Jake and I love cars. And when you're a car person, you really form an emotional attachment to the car, which you really do. Yeah. And if you're not a car person, it sounds bizarre. But if you're a car person, you totally get it. So I felt bad. You know, when I went to trade it in, they took it as a trade in. I felt like, you know, like somebody close to me was passing away. And then when I started cleaning out the car, I
1: felt like I was stripping that person's jewelry off of them and just leaving them with a bunch of strangers. It's what I imagine. Pet people feel like because I'm not really like a, I have pets, but I'm like a super over the top pet person. So imagine just taking your pet somewhere and just trading it in for a new pet. Yeah, it's the same feeling,
0: you know. But I was very lucky. I went back to the dealership to take care of some other stuff and I saw the person that bought the car and I got to spend a little time talking to them and they bought it and they're going to put it, they're going to do it themselves. They're going to put a used transmission back in it. So, you know, now my car is going to make somebody else happy, which is cool. That's awesome, man. Congratulations. Yeah. So let's see what happens. <laughs> but it was not a fun thing to have to do. And, and the funny thing is I was all cocky, and I told the salesman, I said, I bet you've never sold two cars at the same time because I've done four. I was like, damn it. <laughs> I wanted the record. And speaking of record, we got some reviews. This is Quick and to the Point by KLJD from Malaysia. Cool. Our listeners in Malaysia, big shout out. No fluff, informed opinion. Good work, gents. Love it. And then Bristol Dan from the UK. Love this podcast. I work in oil and gas in the North Sea and love listening to this podcast from across the pond. Keep them coming. Bristol Dan Oh, we got a third one. Shoot. Just what I need from AEM1547 from the United States. This podcast is informative across oil and gas, not just a subset. I appreciate that it's short enough to listen to on my commute and get an overview of the happenings. When I want a deep dive, I then can go do the research. Keep up the great work and do not shy away from the politically driven misinformation being fed to the public on this lifeline of modern life. I tell you what, AEM1547, Jake and I agree with you 100%. We will
1: keep it up. Jake, this is the first Friday Q&A, so let's get into questions. You guys know what that means. You guys write in questions, we answer them. So First question, we're just going to dive in. So A lot of you guys may not know this, but we don't take every question that's written in. We get a lot of crazy off-the-wall stuff. We decided to leave one in. And maybe we can help. It's a glimpse into our daily life. We got a write in from an Ed. He writes I'm trying to locate a classmate named Michael Market. We are having a class reunion this February 21st, 22nd, and 23rd. If you know of his contact information, please forward this to him. Even if he cannot come, we'd like to update contact information Antelope High School class of 1966.
0: So, Jake, we are now the Lost Classmate Finding podcast. That's kind of cool. But I'm telling you, if anybody knows who Michael Market is and he graduated in 1966 from Envelope High School, seriously, send him my way so we can connect him with Edward. Because if we can help somebody find a law classmate,
1: why would we not do it? (laughs) All right, let's let's get into some real questions. So we have a question from Tyler, who's an engineer. He writes, "Hey guys, I work a lot around natural gas flaring. I wonder if you know any individuals or companies you can connect me with for crypto mining to use our excess gas as a profit center, or is this something no one else is doing? I think there's an opportunity in natural gas flaring space for cryptocurrency mining. There actually are a few companies who are actually doing it. Crusoe Energy Systems, I believe, is one of them, which is backed by the Winklevoss Twins." You've got Petronium, I believe is the name, another company that's also doing the same thing. And then there's another company that I can't remember their name, but I actually talked to them about five or six months back. And they're also in this space. They're funded. Half the teams from oil, half the teams from Silicon Valley. Yeah. So there are people that are actually doing it. There's a lot of questions around the viability of doing this. And there's also potential implications like in the event that you were to flare this off? Do you owe anything to mineral owners? Such and such. There's a lot of accounting kind of questions around that. But yes, there are companies that are currently doing this. Hey, Tyler,
0: reach out to Sergei with Easy Blockchain. I interviewed him on the tech podcast. And this is exactly what they're doing. They have portable mining equipment that runs off flare gas. So use my name, reach out to Sergei at Easy Blockchain and just have a conversation with him. But Jake, it's exciting that this is a potential another revenue stream for our industry. We haven't worked out all the wrinkles yet, but I just think it's awesome.
1: No, it's awesome considering you know a lot of places it's a negative differential on gas. You know, it's becoming more of a cost than than it should be. So if you can put that to good use and turn it into some, you know, meaningful revenue, I think that's exciting. Up next, we got a question from M Funes, VP of Business Development and Oil Service Company. He writes, "You asked for feedback about your political views. I am in my 30s. I have 15 years of experience in the industry. I'm an American living in Norway and consider myself a liberal. I listen to your podcast and always take it with a pinch of salt. I want to hear the news and trends, and I think listening to you is worth my time for this purpose. However, I also think you're too political. The amount of times you ask people to vote a specific way is not necessary. The amount of times you put down people, groups, and government with different views is kind of productive. If we want young people to work in our industry, we need to approach the conversation from a consolidation perspective rather than polarizing the landscape. Young people can be Democrats and environmentally friendly, and work in the oil and gas industry. Seems you are constantly against these types of people. Jake, have we ever asked anybody to vote? Actually, we have. When
0: there's anti oil and gas state legislation, like in Colorado or, or California, we have asked people to, to vote, right? So, yeah, I'll take that. But the other thing is, you may be surprised. Of my fumes is is I'm not like this staunch conservative that doesn't like Democrats. I'm a moderate. A lot of the liberal viewpoints, especially socially, I fully support and believe in. I just think the oil and gas industries is taking it on the chin, and there are people out there that don't understand our industry, that are influencing our politics, that's hurting all of us, including you, if you work in the industry. So you know, I do really honestly, sincerely appreciate the feedback. I want to know if people think that we're too political on the show, because if you listen to it while you know that I've made this statement that I'm going to get much more personally and professionally involved in politics because I just have to, to fight for my industry. But I do really appreciate you reaching out. And I love Norway, by
1: the way. It's funny. Once you get to know me, I'm actually not a very political person. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. If anything, I would align myself with more libertarian But even then, I'm not 100% in that camp. I think if you're 100% in any camp, I just don't think it's realistic. I think we all have differing views on different things, different topics. But one thing that I am definitely pro is our industry. We love our industry. We know the difference that it makes in the world The abundance of hydrocarbons, especially in the United States, provides us with an amazing life that, you know, it's very easy to see if you go to a third world country that doesn't have that, the difference that it makes in the quality of life. And so I will go to the end of the earth to protect our industry and to educate people on our industry. But in terms of I'm definitely, you know, I'm not pro-Trump. I'm not anti-Trump. I'm not, like I said, I'm not Republican or Democratic. So, yeah, I'm unapologetically 100% for our industry. And so and we'll continue to do that forever. So, but thank you for your feedback. We really do appreciate it. We will try to be a little bit less political moving forward, even though I don't Not feel it. Like... <laughs> all right. Next, we have a question from Mary writes, Hi, thank you for all the great information you were providing. My question is regarding the future of the industry. My daughter is going after a degree in petroleum engineering in Texas. Would you recommend such a career in oil and gas to your children? Thanks so much. You want to take a first? Yeah.
0: That's not even a hard one because by the time, so my son's 14, by the time my son gets out of school, there's going to be a huge charge of petroleum engineers. He's going to make big bucks.
1: Yeah, so that's one way to look at it. I think if I was to give advice, my son's only two years old. So – it's really, really speculative to see what the world's going to be like whenever he's you know, old enough to actually work. Let's say he's in his mid-20s. But I'm seeing a lot of the writing on the walls that traditional reservoir engineering is becoming, and this is not my words, this is in the words of actual reservoir engineers that I've worked with and know, is that it's almost becoming obsolete due to the democratization of data. And so my suggestion would be, and I was actually talking to an engineer the other day, would be, I know a lot, and I've said this I think in the last episode or maybe the one before, I know a lot of mechanical engineers that are software engineers. And a lot of mechanical engineers that are petroleum engineers. And a lot of mechanical engineers that have done a ton of chemical engineering and and such and so forth. And so I feel like that's a really, really safe bet with an emphasis on petroleum engineering in the event that something catastrophic does happen you know. in the event that you're not an entrepreneur and you are at the mercy of your employer, you're at the mercy of a cyclical business. It is good, like we've been talking about, to kind of just hedge yourself and just provide as much value to the market as possible. So I think that's one way to do it. Also, I think everybody needs to be schooled up on data science, especially in this industry most companies are becoming data companies first and foremost, and whatever their actual business is, is actually becoming secondary. So if you understand that, I think you can position yourself in a way that, yeah, come into the oil and gas industry. And I'm not saying don't come into the oil and gas industry. I'm just saying, you know, in current times when we're seeing a major restructuring, especially in shale, there are going to be a significant amount of layoffs. So just because you have a petroleum engineering degree doesn't mean that you're safe. Okay. So let's, I never want to convey that to anybody. And that's, that's true really of any degree.
0: Yeah, you did bring up a good point, Jake, in that the actual degree in petroleum engineer is very niched. It tends to be an upstream specific. That's who tends to hire petroleum engineers. So you do deal with the boom and bust cycles. And and like Jake said, you need some other job sets there as well. Mechanical engineering in our industry, though, Jake, is all over the place. You're right. I mean, most subsea engineers start off as a mechanical engineer somewhere. And just like you, I've seen a whole bunch of people that are writing code that are mechanical engineers. So I don't know if you can get a minor in petroleum engineering with a major in mechanical, but I think Jake's advice is very well spoken. And if your daughter does decide to
1: become a petroleum engineer, she does need to pick up some big data skill sets. Absolutely. All righty. Up to the next one. We have a question from Jonathan, who's a landman. He writes, Hey, Mark and Jake, love the podcast. I haven't missed a show since finding it a couple years back. Wait, first off, that's amazing. Thank you for your support. That's really, really awesome to hear going on. However, I am wondering if you too have any recommendations for a daily oil and gas podcast or an energy podcast in general, oil and gas and related issues is not only my job, but also my hobby. And I love learning about it and staying up to date with daily news surrounding the industry. I found that podcasts are such an easy way to do so with my commutes and the work that I do. I usually listen to three to four hours worth of shows a day and I'm not able to find anything to fill this want and need. Have you ever thought about having a daily show on the network or can you recommend any other shows? Thanks to keep for the great work. So Jake, talk about you and Colin's show. Yeah. So there are other podcasts in this space. If you don't know this, I also co-host Oil & Gas Startups Podcast, where we talk about the stories of founders in the space, not just tech companies. That's a common misconception, but you know, also E&P founders, mineral funds, midstream companies, water companies, things of that such. As much as we would love to do a daily podcast, and I'm sure <laughs> I'm sure Mark would love to do that, that is a ton of work. And if you don't know, like I also have businesses to run on the side as well. And that's, you know, Majority of how I make my living. And so I think it's a great concept. And I think a lot of people would actually love it, but we're not to the point yet where we're like the Bloomberg of oil and gas to where we have, you know, just endless amounts of funding and we can hire all these people to do, you know, daily shows and stuff like that. But I would love to do that. I think it's a phenomenal idea. I just think it's going to take a little bit longer to get there.
0: Yeah. So, Jonathan, I had never really thought about it because if you listen to this show for any length of time, Jake and I are lucky to get one out a week, <laughs> you know, and it's just because we're so busy. And when I read this, I go, you know, that's a darn good idea. So, it's in my thought book for 2020. I don't know if we'll be able to do anything with it. The other thing, Jonathan, is Oil and Gas Global Network. So, this group, we have eight oil and gas podcasts as of today, and we're launching three more in the next couple of months. So, we're trying to fill those needs. But the daily show is that's a huge jump in work, and we're just not there yet. But I do have the idea saved because if we manage to get there, I would love to
1: do it. Absolutely. So, thanks for the question, Jonathan. Up next, I had a question from James, who's a front end consultant. With longer reach wells, better directional control, and ever-improving frack technology, is rig count really a good indicator? Besides, frack drill as frack wells not drilling new holes that count? So should we be watching the frack pump count instead? Please explain. Darn good point, because he's right. Years ago, that rig count was a
0: huge indicator. But it also depends on what he's trying to track. I don't know if he's trying to track drilling, production, or completion. You know, if you're trying to track drilling, then of course the rig count is probably really important. If you're trying to track production, that's a harder one to do. If you're trying to track completion, I think the frac pump count actually would probably be a very good indicator of that.
1: Yeah, I 100% agree. I think the rig count only gives you a little bit of a snapshot of the actual entire picture. So Maybe we rethink it. Maybe we include some other stats in that. What do you think, Mark?
0: But I don't know if there's anybody out there that has the resources to track frack packs. If, actually, audience, if you know of any place where that's being tracked online, especially, let Jake and I know because I would love to talk about that. You know, when we do the recount, we can also do the frack pack count. So if, if you might know
1: if there's a resource out there, let us know. All right. Up next, we got a question from Mike. He writes, Hey, guys, I've heard you talk about the industry of hydrocarbons, petrochemicals, and how there's something that most people don't want to talk about when they think about the oil and gas industry, most just think burning gas. I believe it's going to be huge for the industry. How can I invest in the growth and success of these things specifically and not just big old company stock? If you have the same advice for methane hydrates, that will be very welcome to. Hey, Jake, is it me or is Mike looking for us to give him investment
0: advice? That sounds a lot like investment advice. <laughs> I wonder if we should start a show, you and I, Mark and Jake's unofficial investment advice. It could be like Mad Money with Jim Cramer. You know, that would actually be fun to do. So a couple of things, Mike, this is off the top of my head. Check out light as in visible light, L-I-G-H-T, polymers. It's some stuff that's coming out of the R&D labs, I think, of MIT that's going to commercial production. It's literally, imagine plastics that emit light like an LED when you apply power to it. That's going to be revolutionary, and there's no big company that jumped into that yet. But I'm telling you, I think in the future, like like I'm going to invest money in this personally. The other thing with the methylene hydrate, that's a really good question. There's two places. I would look there. One is I'd go check out Japan. Japan is working with, I think, maybe may be wrong, I think it's Kaneko Phillips on seeing if they could make this commercially viable. And if you don't know what methane hydrate is, basically it's ice that burns. So it's at the bottom of the ocean's floor. It just sits on the bottom of the ocean floor in deep water, and it's literally crystal Methane, that is the pressure and the pressure so high and the temperature so low that it literally forms methane ice. And there's more hydrocarbons in methane ice than there is actually in all reservoirs. We just got to figure out if we can tap into it commercially. That'd be the first place I would look at. Then the other place, go check out its starter S-T-A-R-T-E R hyphen up or starter up, something like that.com. They actually are looking for investors for a project to do, convert methane hydrate to a commercial fuel supply. So there's two places you can go look for that. There's two places you can look for the methane investment. And then I told you where to go look for on the petrochemical side, that, that light polymer type of stuff. Anything you want to
1: throw in there, Jake? No, that's about it, man. Yeah, we, we try not to give stock investment advice. Up next, question from Adrian, a sales rep and logistics supervisor. I've been listening to the podcast recently. Great job. So I'm a sales rep for a company that provides equipment to many leaders in hydraulic fracturing out of the Permian Basin. I'm near the end of my 20s and I've gained interest in the corporate side of the industry. I have decided to return to school in order to transition to a more corporate environment. Any advice on this transition? How can I familiarize myself with different career choices? Mark, you're probably better suited to kind of tackle this one than I am. I'm not quite sure what Adrian's asking. So the corporate side of
0: what she's doing now, so instead of being in the field as a salesperson on the corporate side of hydraulic fracking or just the corporate side of like the major super majors, I guess I could tackle both. First thing, I actually come from a sales background. And I actually transitioned into the corporate environment. And I wish I didn't when I was early in my career. I wish I would have stayed a frontline salesperson because you control your destiny. And you know, if you're a top performer, you get what you want, you get paid very well. It's all under your control. Whereas once you enter the corporate world, you're relying on a whole bunch of other people. And I just didn't like that transition. So there's my two cents on that if you're staying with your company. Now, if you're going back to school and want to get like on the corporate side of the major, super majors of service companies and all that, there's a bunch of different places you can go. You know, we keep talking about all the data science type stuff. But another thing is if you have an inkling for accounting or an inkling for legal, that's something that is always in big demand in the oil and gas industry. Same way with project management. You know, you can become a project manager and get on the corporate side and run mega projects. Now, the interesting thing, Adrian, if you really want to climb the ladder and get in that C-suite, as far as I can think, every executive that I personally know in the oil and gas industry has done a time in sales every single one of them. Because when you get to that level, that ability to communicate to people and convince them to agree with you and work with you, which is what sales is, comes in great play when you're an executive trying to run a company. So I wouldn't be too worried about what you actually get your degree and get something that fits your personality. And then when you, your final questions, you are asking about different career choices. Go to one of the job boards, like RigZone has one. It's a little antiquated as far as the way it looks, but people still post a lot of jobs out there. Also go to LinkedIn and see what companies are looking for, and that should help you, you know, narrow down what you want to do with the rest of your
1: career. Absolutely. agree 100%. Up next, we had a question from Stephen, who's VP of Special Projects. He writes, hey, Mark and Jake, I've been listening for several years and love the podcast. Once again, thank you for listening to the show for that long. It's crazy to think that we've been doing this since the end of 2016. You've been doing it longer and people have been listening for years on end. So I don't know what's crazier that which we love y'all,
0: our existing audience or our new audience that go back and binge listen to us over and over again. I mean,
1: Jake, I love you to death, but I could listen to your voice for 160 hours. Sure, so. I'm right there with you. <laughs> <laughs> So, okay, going on, one topic that comes up frequently is the continued need for fossil fuels, and my question is along those lines. According to page 83 of BP's 2019 Energy Outlook and several other market studies, the current global consumption of liquids by sources of enduring growth, petrochemicals, feedstocks, aviation, marine fuel, is about 20 million barrels per day, approximately 20% of total consumption. The rest goes toward sources that are more at risk if there's a major technological jump in green energy and battery technology, aka road transport, power generation, stuff like that. Even if we see robust growth in petrochemicals and marine aviation fuel over the next few decades, those are unlikely to consume more than 35 million barrels a day of liquids. Here's my question for you. If there's a huge technological breakthrough that reduced demand for liquids in road transportation, fuel, and power industry, such that the global demand dropped from 100 million barrels a day to 70 million barrels a day in 2040, where do you think the 70 million barrels a day would come from, and how would it change the structure of the oil and gas industry? This is a great freaking question, Stephen. I mean, this is a really strategic
0: think, thinker type of question. So I'm going to actually just go along with your assumption. And if something major happened, and that something major would probably be a breakthrough in storage technology and also costs, because right now electric vehicles really are only for the wealthy. But if let's say that happens. Where would that 70 million barrels they come from. So I'm going to tell you right now that 7 million barrels, which would not be used for transportation, which would be used for petrochemicals, that sort of stuff, needs to be heavy complex crudes because that's where you get the best yield. And so when I think about it that way, that 7 million barrels probably would still come from Canada, Venezuela, and the Middle East. East, which is where we get those heavy complex crudes. Now, if you continue to follow that chain of thought, but if that happened, then things like OPEC would literally disappear because they lost all this demand for their crude because the transportation demand has gone away. And so, if that happened, then I think you'd see huge political instability in the Middle East. And so, I think it may be crazy enough that some big country like China or Russia may actually prop up, if we haven't done it ourselves yet, prop up Venezuela just so we can get those heavy complex crudes out of Venezuela and then I think the demand from Canada would be such that the politics up there would change so that they could also get their heavy complex crudes to market. So in some ways I think it would be a big benefit to Canada and Venezuela if if I think it out longer longer term wise because I think OPEC would fall apart and then you'd have the individual Middle Eastern nations competing and I guarantee that would start war. And so once all that shook out I still think it'd be a big chance it'd be coming from Canada to Venezuela. So
1: what do you think, Jake? As much as I would love to see a major step change in the technology, you know, for especially like battery technology, for example, we're still so far away. I would love to see it. I think that opens up so many new possibilities. You know, I'm a huge technology guy. You know, I love to see the world change. And I think that would open up, you know, I love actually, believe it or not, even as a car guy, I know it sounds kind of blasphemous, but some of the things that they've been able to do with electric cars... On the sporty side of things is is absolutely remarkable. Porsche just released their new Taycan Turbo S, which is actually faster than a Bugatti. <laughs> so zero to sixty two point four seconds. It's got like eleven hundred horsepower. And it's in a car that actually handles well. It's super light and it charges to 80% within 20 minutes. So we're making advances in that technology, but I think we're still so far away from where we need to be. Battery storage is extremely expensive at this point. Hydrocarbons are much more efficient compared to most renewables. It's so much cheaper. And especially with, it seems like commodity prices are becoming even more suppressed, especially on the natural gas side. It's a harder and harder case for some of the renewables, but yeah, we'll see how it plays out. I think the auto industry is really leading the charge, especially when it comes to, to some of the battery technology. But I, unfortunately, I just think we're so so far away.
0: Yeah, a lot of people don't know this, but Jake, do you remember what the very first Tesla was?
1: The, uh, the little roadster. It
0: was a roadster and it was fast as all get out, right? That was the very first Tesla. And when I say storage technology, people think batteries, but there's other ways to store energy. But Stephen, this is a really good question. I'm still it's going on in the back of my head because you know if that loss of market would happen, it would destabilize OPEC. It would just be an interesting time. If it happens, I don't want to see it happen quickly. I hope it happens slowly so that we can adjust. But just great question, Stephen.
1: All right, we have a question from Brad, who's a utilities and power generation product line exec. Does Exxon know something about biofuel that its peers don't appreciate your insight on algae fuel, Mark, as you usually have some reliable economic stats?
0: Hell yeah. Exxon's looking at a bunch of biofuels. But to understand this question better, you need to understand how hydrocarbons were originally made. So hydrocarbons were formed in... A period of our time actually they're still being formed now they're always being formed but they were formed a period of time in earth's history where the earth was much warmer than it is now the oceans were much warmer and so you had a lot of plankton and zooplankton and that plankton a lot of it was algae that grew and you may not know this but basically plankton and let's say let's use the word algae which is a part of plankton i know this so no hate mail so let's take algae so when algae is growing it converts carbon dioxide with using sunlight to sugar, and that sugar gets converted to oils, right? And those oils, when that algae died and sank to the ocean floor, if it sank to the floor in an area where there was little or no oxygen, it didn't decompose, so those oils stayed there, and then it, if you put a layer of sediment, and this is going on in the Gulf of Mexico right now, Mississippi's dumping a layer of sediment over non-decomposing algae, then the earth starts compression and heating that over millions of years, and it converts those oils that were started off as sunlight and carbon dioxide into hydrocarbons. So what Exxon Mobil's doing. And it's a group effort. I can't remember the other companies, but ExxonMobil has been working with a genetic company and I think the Colorado School of Mines, a couple other people, and they've genetically engineered this algae not only to produce more oil than normal, but to grow in brackish water. So what ExxonMobil's doing is short-circuiting the natural way to make hydrocarbons and doing it man-made. And they're very far ahead of this. So they're going to be able to make algae and fuel smell. You think of diesel, ethanol, gasoline, any of those type of things they're going to be able to make this from algae, but they're going to make it from algae that grows in brackish water. Now, Jake, what is produced water when you drill a well? Usually it's brackish, right? So now Exxon's not only creating fuels, but creating fuels with an algae that can grow places that other algae can't grow. And this is actually a very strong biofuel. The problem with biofuels is it takes a lot of land and takes a lot of water. I can't remember the exact stats, but if you get a 1,000 BTUs from most biofuels. It's about 1,500 gallons of water it takes to get the number of BTUs. To get the same number of BTUs from oil and gas is three gallons of water. right? And this water is fresh. The cool thing about what Exxon's doing is they're able to do this without using fresh water. So this is a biofuel that actually potentially makes financial sense. Exxon's out there. I think they're doing about 5,000 barrels of algae biofuels a day in their experimental plant. By 2025, they want to be up to 10,000. And this is a cool technology because not only does it allow you to make biofuels that make economic sense, most biofuels don't. But it also is allowing them to experiment. So if this is the beginning of their biofuel strategy, and trust me, when Exxon Mobil does stuff, it's always a long-term play, 20 or 30 years from now, this thing's going to be extremely commercially viable. And then, like I said, Exxon has a whole bunch of biofuel research problems, looking at like uh, cellulose and using feedstock for uh, other things to do, make plastics and stuff. But the one that's most likely to be commercially successful is this algae program they're doing it, which I think is just fascinating. And I love the fact that it's Exxon Mobil doing it.
1: Yeah, I don't know anything about that. So we're just going to go to the next question. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Last question for the day is a question from William, who's an operation coordinator. He writes, as always, great show. Keep the good work, guys. On episode 192, Jay made some comments expressing his thoughts about domestic crude producers should form a cartel and artificially restrict production and therefore inflate the price of crude. I understand his position as it would benefit producers like him. However, I'm curious why Jake thinks the market for crude is different than the market for any other product or commodity. For example, you never hear anyone say that we need to limit the supply of tennis shoes on the market to protect the profits of tennis shoe producers. Instead, we just enjoy the cheap, abundant shoes and let the entrepreneurs in the shoe business figure out how to compete and operate a profit. Additionally, I'd like to hear Jake's comments on government quotas or ration and how that factors in. It's my understanding that the Railroad Commission prorates crude production in Texas, and I believe The Oklahoma Corporation Commission does the same. It could be wrong. Of course, we're all familiar with OPEC and their attempts to control supply and control price globally. Wouldn't a free market be best? Do we really need government quotas or private cartels to find the optimal supply of crude? Great question. Obviously, as you mentioned, up until three weeks ago, I was incentivized to have crude and natural gas be as high as possible because we benefited directly from it from our oil wells that were producing up in Oklahoma. We have since sold those and I am temporarily out of the operating game. But my comments still stand. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? I don't necessarily know. It's kind of speculative at this point. Let's just play devil's advocate and say that OPEC was to completely just go away and Saudi Arabia and every other company was just to completely open the floodgates what's going to happen? We're going to see probably less than $20 a barrel crude. Natural gas is already as low as it's been in probably, I think it's, what, 10 years, right, Mark? Yeah, it's extremely low. Yeah, extremely low. A lot of the natural gas producers are probably going to go bankrupt here soon. So what happens then? Great for consumers, terrible for anybody who's trying to push the renewable agenda because now hydrocarbons have become so, so, so cheap that those are just so far away. So in the event that those need to become viable, we're going to need to see more subsidies from the government just to kind of offset a lot of the costs that are associated with those. A lot of producers would file bankruptcy, which we're already seeing now not always a bad thing. we see a lot of major restructuring. we see a significant amount of layoffs. Yeah. So what would actually happen? I'm not I'm not really sure. I know that would be absolutely devastating for our industry, just like it has been with every other downturn, especially when we saw, you know, oil go down to was it twenty six dollars a barrel, I think in fifteen. Yep. And having lived through that, that was pretty bad. So obviously selfish purposes to, I think there's a there's a happy medium. You know, I think we're in between anywhere from 55 to $65 a barrel kind of benefits everybody. It benefits the consumer, it benefits the producers. I feel like it's just a happy medium. And I think what we're seeing is that we're just absolutely drilling. We've made so many technological advances. And we're punching so many holes in the ground that we're absolutely just drilling WTI into the ground. So it would be an interesting exercise to see you know, if everybody was to control the price a little bit. Can we get a little bit more per barrel? And could everybody make a little bit more money? Could the industry thrive a little bit more? Obviously, there's a lot of other issues that are going on, a lot of other things that are currently at play, especially between shale producers and Wall Street and the capital structure of some of these companies. Those things still need to change. But if you look at other things, they're not necessarily commodities, but you look at other things, as I mentioned earlier in the episode, I'm very libertarian. I'm all about less government intervention. But there are certain things where the government, I believe, is a great force. It needs to kind of come in and kind of place some regulations on things. And one of those things being, I love the fact that there was a new bill that was passed that allowed or uh, mandated transparency on the medical side for medical expenses between insurance companies and healthcare providers that benefits the end consumer. You know, and I think that currently what we're also seeing, I think we need, need a lot more regulation in that space because healthcare costs are absolutely astronomical, especially if you're an entrepreneur. It comes out of your pocket regardless. Either way, you know, I pay more for healthcare costs than I do for my home. It's absolutely astonishing, you know, and then same thing with college tuition. We've seen college tuition inflation over the last, what, 20 or 30 years by, I don't even know the stat, but I know it's probably like 10x, 20x, whatever. I've seen a lot of infographics on that where it's just, it's insane. You know, I think student debt in the United States is like at $1.2 trillion, and a lot of people are not paying down their debt whatsoever. And so, should we have the government step in and say, This is absolutely ridiculous? You know, most people make it out that you need some kind of degree to succeed in the United States today. I don't necessarily agree with that, but that is the common theory there. And should you have to pay, you know, should you have to rack up half a million dollars in debt just to go out and get a job? You know, schools are businesses, they are for profit. Most of them are for profit. Should they be able to just rake up? tuition, you know, a thousand X and force you to pay that, you know, if everybody's in kind of cahoots together, I think it's a flaw in capitalism, you know, and I think the same thing could kind of be said about potentially about oil. Maybe I'm off base. Maybe I'm not.
0: I don't know. Tell you what, we'll definitely push Jake's button on that one. Ask a question, and get it a us <laughs> <laughs> see what happens. My two cents on this: so when you really, truly think about, it, there really is no free market. I do think we need to be as close to free market as possible in the oil and gas industry. It's a, one of the true few global commodities. One of the problems is not everybody plays fair. You know, you have OPEC, you have Russia, you have China. So we need our government to step in and try to level the playing field. That's what we do with import tariffs, export tariffs, that stuff. It's really just trying to level the playing field. So I do agree that the free market would be best, but the reality is there really is no free market. So we need a little bit of of government help there. I definitely don't believe in private cartels because then it's all about the private cartel. But just, you know, once again, really good question. I'll tell you what, Jake, our audience is getting
1: really good at asking some questions that make us think. These are some good questions. Don't take it that I was offended by any means or that that was a bad question. I think it was a great question. I think it's purely speculative as to which direction that it would go one way or another. But in summary, I think fifty-five to sixty-five dollar oil is great. I think anything less than that, I think it's detrimental to a lot of people. Anything higher than that, I think it also has the same effect.
0: Yeah. The other thing I
1: actually really like is the US is the only country that I know of where we can
0: own mineral rights, where the people that own the land that own the surface rights can own the mineral rights. I think that's another piece of the puzzle that you know people don't talk about a bunch. So you go to any other country, the government make some money from the hydrocarbons not the people whose land they're drilling wells on i think our way and whoever wrote earlier that i talk bad about other countries i'm not talking bad about other countries or other groups or other peoples i'm just saying in the u.s it's done this way and i think it's the best way so anyway let's go to the giveaway
1: all right so we're still doing the giveaway yep. so everybody just needs to go to the link in the show notes click the link you can win a t-shirt with the it's got a patent I have a pump check on that. Each one of these is serialized. We will be doing some giveaways here soon. We'll be announcing your number, and you will win a new Ferrari. (laughs) Or something else. (laughs) Or something else. Something something else that we decide to kind of auction off. So just go to the link in the description below and enter for your chance to win a shirt. Jake, did we talk about this in a last show that I found out
0: that somebody was trying to reverse engineer these shirts? (laughs) Did we talk about yeah, that or no? Yeah, yeah, we did. We did. Okay. I just think that's a compliment that somebody wants to reverse engineer your shirts. Don't do it. Don't let me catch you doing it. The only way you can get one of these is win. So go enter. And if you don't win, just enter every week. It'll increase your odds. Speaking of how important the weekly rig count is not. What's the weekly rig count, Jake?
1: 820. So last week it was 817, I believe. So we're pretty much we're at a less than 1% change week over week. That's cool. Good number. And then you've heard us talk about the street team.
0: You want to join, go to Facebook. uh, Just look for the OGG and street team. Speaking of shirts, we're finally getting some shirts made for our street team. So if you're a member of the street team, I know you've been hearing me say it for probably a year. They're coming out. Catherine's actually doing the design with a graphic artist. Hopefully you have those out in about the next 30 days. And our street team is just our all-volunteer group that helps us do cool stuff, especially our social media. And if we're somewhere in your geographic area, you get to come to our live events for free. And if we're going to some conference in your area, you can come join us as a of our press team. And then if you want to know about all the oil and gas events that are going on, because we got Nape right around the corner, we got Sarah Week right around the corner, all that sort of stuff's in our monthly oil and gas newsletter. Actually, it's my monthly oil and gas newsletter, but I'll share for free. Go to the link and sign up there. And then if you want Jake and I to come speak at your organization, your club, your actually talk about cars, your car club, whatever, let us know. The other thing we do that's really popular is we bring this podcast live to your event. So not only do you get to see Jake and I do this in person, which is way funnier than listening to us, but then your company and your group gets exposed on the number one podcast in the world in the oil and gas industry. So if you want to learn more about that, reach out to us and let us know. We'll be happy to share details. This is the first Friday Q&A. This is what we do every week, every month. I'm sorry. Just send us questions. Remember, the goal is not to stump Jake and I. It's to ask thoughtful questions, to help educate the audience, and then go join our LinkedIn group. I don't even know what we're up to, but it's huge. Just go to LinkedIn, look for OGGN. Oh, it's been a busy day, and we got a lot of stuff to get done. And it's Super Bowl Sunday, so you ready to get out here, Jake? Let's do it. Remember, folks, do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. And here are the events on deck. Hey,
2: everybody. Alex here with the events on deck for February. We do not have any OGGN happy hours in February, but we do have an exciting event coming up in Pittsburgh. This will be our first happy hour there in March and it will be taking place on March 25th. The location is to be determined, so be sure to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, or Twitter to keep up with uh, those announcements and to purchase tickets. The Houston API Luncheon will be on February 11th. This will be a networking event with top oil and gas business leaders, and they promise that you'll be learning something really cool. So check it out and sign up for that event. The Wildcatters Ball will be on February 7th in Houston. This ball is the primary oil and natural gas industry fundraising event for the IPAA Educational Foundation. Proceeds go toward funding the foundation's energy education programs. The API Energy Houston Three-Gun Chapter will be on March 20th in Houston. This event fills up really quickly, so make sure to get your team entered. The best way to do so is to fax or email the form with at least a captain's name as soon as possible. If you need to wait for a check, just notate that on the bottom of the form and send it on. We will be sending Mark LaCour and Patrick Pister to Scotland, to Aberdeen, Scotland, on March 5th for DokuruCon, which is the first event of its kind. It is a conference for creating high impact sales in energy. And Mark and Patrick will be hosting a panel and recording a live podcast. If you're interested in attending this event, visit dokarucon.dokkaru.com. And that is D-O-Q-A-R-U-C-O-N. That's all for this month. Thanks for tuning in and be sure to check again next month for more updates on OGGN events.
1: Tune in next week for
0: another informative and entertaining episode of Oil & Gas This Week podcast, a product of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasthisweek.com.